Blog Talk Radio. Hello, hello, on this beautiful Friday, or at least I hope it's beautiful where you are. I'm Laura Mai, speech language pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk the Podcast. Boy, do we have a great show for today. I have a guest, Dr. Jenny Trocchio, and I hope I pronounced that correctly. And I heard her a couple months ago when Johnny and I were on a trip to Colorado, and I noticed that there was a continuing education opportunity there at the same hotel that we were going to be staying in, and it just all, all those stars aligned for me. <laughs> so I got to go hear her, even though she's in a different state and I was in a different state. And it was such a great day that I thought she would be a wonderful guest for the podcast, and we had it scheduled a while ago, and she was sick, and then I think I probably had some conflicts too. So I am so glad you're finally able to make it, Jenny. Thanks for coming on the show. Of course, Laura. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm really excited about this opportunity. Well, I just loved hearing you talk about floor time and the DIR method. And I first read Dr. Greenspan's groundbreaking book, The Special Needs Child. Gosh, right after it was written in the late 90s. I think it was 98, maybe. And I had just started my career in early intervention. And the reason that I sought out something is because my Formal training as a speech-language pathologist did not prepare me (laughs) for children who were not just language-delayed for kids. And then that was the time, and I don't know how old you are, Jenny, I'm terrible at estimating age, but the end of the 90s was when the autism epidemic really, really exploded, and I started seeing children on my caseload that I had no idea what to call them, what to uh, diagnostically with a a specific – diagnostic label what you think about them because certainly more was going on than just with language and so I felt like floor time really saved me because it explained <laughs> what was going on with autism and again all that was new at that time and then it taught, it really showed me what to do and what to work on and so many times speech language pathologists even today 20 years later are having that same experience where we are in school and we're getting a lot of in, more information about autism, but we still don't know how to treat it. And so floor time, I think, is the, the, just the foundational piece <laughs> that lots of therapists and uh, clinicians and parents are looking for when we are thinking about working with children with those red flags. So um, I'm going to shut up now because I think I've probably gone on. <laughs> Three minutes tirade here. So, uh, again, thank you for coming on. Go ahead. I'm so sorry, but I just wanted to jump in. And I love your introduction, and I love the way you kind of found floor time because that's pretty much how I found floor time as well. So, I'm an educator, my background is in education. Mm -hmm. And the way I was traditionally trained, I didn't feel like I was reaching so many of the kids who it turns out had autism. And there was so much potential there. I mean, so much potential, but I just didn't feel like I was, I had the tools to really access it. And so I really looked into a bunch of different methods and some just seemed unnatural. Some seemed almost mean. And then when I found floor time, it was like a whole new world opened up. So I really thought that it's a way, yes, for all fields, you know, from education to speech to to the parents um, to connect with these kids and to really make an impact. So I love that we have similar um, startings here. 
Yeah, yeah, and it really did feel like relief to me. And that book, uh, The Special Needs Child, is just, it was really a big, thick book. And I remember going and seeing kids and thinking, I've got to find a section to get home and read about this. And then Dr. Greenspan's other books, you know, I just began to collect them and just absorb everything that I could. And the, the thing that made the most sense to me was really looking at the levels, the the. Uh, and we're at kind of the starting level for four time because as someone who works with toddlers and preschoolers, and at that time I was just exclusively doing home health visits for uh, and a state-based early intervention program, really those first couple of levels were, were so difficult to teach clinicians and parents how to work on that. But that's exactly where we needed to start with those foundational pieces. So do you mind running through those levels and, and talking about what those levels are and giving examples so that we can sort of walk through that? Because again, I think so many times as therapists and parents, we start at, at levels and goals and, and concepts that we're working on with kids that are just way beyond where they are developmentally. <laughs> and that's why our treatment programs fail, because we're starting at at things that are just totally unrealistic. And we, we start trying to get a kid to imitate a word and use language when he's not even connected to us. It really has no idea that we are even in the same room as him. <laughs> so if you'll start with level one and walk us through those six levels, I think that's a great way to begin this, unless you have kind of another introductory spiel that you would like to say first. No, actually, I think the, the functional de- – functional, emotional, developmental levels is perfect. Um, because as you said, so often, you know, we go in with our own agenda and we say like right. from an educator's perspective, today we have to read, you know, page 65. Um, but then we see that the child's not even able to calm and regulate their body enough to sit in a chair. So, you know, it's really right. about finding that match. Um, and so that's kind of where the developmental levels begin. So it begins at level one, which is shared attention, regulation, and interest in the world. So that's the child's ability to be calm in their body, <laughs> to share attention right. with another person while being able to filter out all of the incredibly distracting sensory stimuli that's, that's coming into their systems. Um, and so really that's the foundation of everything. If they can't sit, be calm and regulated in their body while sharing attention with another person, there's no reason to be working on anything else. That is the foundation. <laughs> that, that, that's what we really Absolutely. need to make sure our kids have. Absolutely. Um, and, then, and I do see right? therapists, I see therapists screw this up all day, every day. And they'll, they'll, <laughs> I get emails and I do a lot of consultative work like you do, where people are saying, hey, really help me with this kid. You know, but it's not the, so much the the parents coming to you, it's the therapist coming to you for help. And, and I think, you know, you've got to back way up all the way back to that uh, very beginning. And they'll say, how do I get a kid uh, to imitate words or to follow directions and those kinds of things when, again, he's bouncing off the walls. Or they'll say, how do you work with a kid that's quote unquote wild or a sensory seeker? You know, how do, how do I get them to talk? And again, I'm making it so simplistic. But that's where it needs to be, right back at the very beginning where we get that social engagement going. And that's our only goal at the beginning. Our only goal is to get them to the place where they are calm and regulated enough to be able to interact. (laughs) And there's no hope for communication beyond that if we can't get that initial regulatory piece 
where it's much more consistent and where we're seeing that calm <laughs> one-on-one attention much more often than a kid who was scattered and just kind of absolutely, absolutely. And one of the best ways to get to that self-regulation piece um, is to incorporate some of um, some sorts of sensory motor play. So um, right. a lot of our kids maybe can't regulate because they can't feel their bodies or because, right. you know, the lights are too bright, the sounds are too loud. So sometimes just, you know, having, um, getting that sensory input so that they can engage with another person, so that they can feel calm in their body. I mean, it's just such a critical piece. But I think so often, just as you said, we get so stuck in, in our goals at way higher levels that that might seem babyish um, or that might seem inappropriate for certain settings. But frankly, that's exactly what so many of our kiddos needed at those lower levels. Yeah, and so when you say sensory motor play, explain some examples of that. And let me just say, too, Jenny, I think I talked to you about this already, but you worked primarily with school-age kids, which I think we have some listeners, some therapists or clinicians, who professional people who are in a school-age population, but the majority of the folks who are caring about things that I have to say are birth to three or early preschool uh, focuses. So those kinds of activities, and I I hope I gave you enough of a heads up about that, but that's not a big surprise. (laughs) Gotcha. No, not at all. And you probably, I'm sure you did. I'm sure you did. Um, And so, well, the good news about that is that sensory motor play is very appropriate at those lower, at those lower ages. Um, So the birth to three, um, and I guess it's when they get older, and that's what I'm thinking about, where, you know, someone will say, no, we can't pull out a ball um, or something like that. But yeah. but that's actually fantastic because at those lower levels um, or at the, the younger ages, you really don't want to work on things like flashcards. You don't want to work on things like drills. You know, Gosh. sit here, be quiet, do this. <laughs> um, right. It's not going to work. You really want to exactly. think about, okay, how can we get this body um, regulated? How can we get it so that the child is alert to everything that's going on? And sometimes, depending on the child's sensory profile, it might mean, you know, bouncing on a ball or going for a walk or climbing something or, you know, singing something. So everyone's sensory profile is a little bit different, but engaging in activities with another person that really includes your body and help you feel your body. I mean, that's really what so many of our kids need. Um, you know, pillow fights and, and crashes and jumps and that sort of stuff can make a huge difference when it comes to regulation for our kids. Yeah, it really can. And, you know, a lot of times with parents, and so if parents are listening, this is one of the things that I really talk to parents about, and they're saying, what can I do? What can I do to make these therapy sessions go better? How can I just really maximize what you're trying to do with him? And especially when I worked in home health and I was doing home visits, that's one of the things that I talk to parents about is them getting that piece not only regularly included in their day, which was super, super important any time that they knew, that their child was really about to do something that required more focused participation and attention is just to do some of those physical activities. So, so many times I would tell parents, you know, we would come up with just really uh, just kind of a checklist of four or five different activities that they could do before I arrived so that we could make sure those little bodies (laughs) were ready to learn. And so even something simple like jumping on the bed if they don't have a trampoline or a big game of chase, 
through their house where the parents are really, really running. And I would talk to them, too, about it later when I started doing more clinic visits. You know, I, I remember one little girl who was just such a sensory seeker, meaning that she was, and I, I know you know what this means, but for the benefit of parents who are listening who may not have heard that term before, sensory-seeking children are those kids who are doing everything they can to get as much oomph <laughs> in whatever activity they are exploring because they're just out there. And sometimes they do look kind of, what I said before, wild because they are running, they're crashing, they're bumping, they're doing all of those things. And so I had this little girl who was so like that for therapy sessions and so I said to her mom you know you're getting here 10 minutes before our session consistently and I cannot see you 10 minutes early so why don't you just keep her out in the parking lot and even just have her jump from you know the step the ledge of the van jump on the on the ground there in the parking lot and then you put her right back up there and have her do it again and do it again and do it again and that made a huge difference and how settled she was. And the mom came in one day and she said, basically, you're just telling me to wear her out before I get in here. And I said, if that uh-huh. explanation works for you, that's fine. If that's how you have to think about it. And, you know, think about, uh, and I know you talked about this too and gave this example in your course, just how, how often in past generations children played outside and our moms were just kind of and grandmothers would send us outside and say you know don't come back until (laughs) dinner or don't come back until lunch and so we had all those opportunities and kids now don't really get that like they did previously with recess being cut out and all, all of those physical components that we used to think about as a part of every kid's childhood we certainly don't think about that as often as we do now or, or then we, we don't think about that now. Yeah. It's so true. It's so true. I mean, you know, a key to developmental progress across the board is to, to play, to use our bodies. Right. And if you think about traditional sort of play, um, again, not with a device, but with another human right. being, <laughs> I mean, yeah. the movement piece is critical because it's connecting so many of these neurons going on in the brain. And, and when you're playing, you know, you have to communicate, you have to regulate your behavior, you have to do all this stuff, but it's fun. So you want to do it. So all of these amazing capacities come together in a way that's fun and meaningful for the child when we include movement, when we include more play. Um, So it's just these key pieces. And actually, I love that suggestion that you just threw out there of, you know, spending 10 minutes before you're about to go into a session or any um, any more structured setting to just move, to right. get that input into your body so that you'll be able to be calm and settled. I think that's a great tip across the board. Yeah, I love it. And it's one that parents really, under, even if they don't understand it, it's one they do. And they think, I don't really understand why she really thinks this is important, but this is pretty easy in the in the general scope of what <laughs> my therapists are asking me to do for this child or what the teacher expects. And so I think it is one that we should make as therapists. And let me just say, for those of you who are listening, you think, and if you're thinking, I can't get a parent to do that or I don't get this much participation, you don't get it until you ask. And then another thing that I like to do for those families that were just beginning or families that I think, gosh, you know, please do something to participate with me here. Take the first 10 minutes of your session and do those kinds of things and say, this is what, this is how I want you to interact with him. These are the kinds of activities that you can do. And again, come up with that plan with those, you know, four or five activities so that a parent has 
something to remember and pull from. And that might be a family's only quote-unquote homework for a couple of weeks is really making sure before every therapy session or before any time that they're going to do something structured like reading up for a meal or just any time that, that they do need their child calm and participatory, pull out those activities and get those things going. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, and that kind of moves right into the level two, which is engagement and forming relationships. So once we get past that child's ability to be calm and regulated in their body, we want them to be able to actually engage with another person. So you're not just kind of staring at them, but we want the kids to be actively engaged. (laughs) And, you know, we call that in DIR, we think about it in terms of the gleam in the eye which is something, mm-hmm. it, it might sound a little abstract, but I think you know it when you got it, right? Um, yes. When a child's actually thoroughly engaged in what's happening, you know, it's clear. Um, and that's really what we want is to work on sustained engagement throughout a day. And I think that's right. kind of a key for all children because so often they tend to zone out, tune out in, in a corner kind of by themselves and that's really a child kind of going further and further down a rabbit hole, the way I like to think about it. Um, So we need to get them engaged with the world around them. Um, And so often whatever worked for level one will also work to help get that child really engaged, but also thinking about what does this child love to do? Um, Right. Level two is often sometimes thought to be the sweat level. And that's because... I love that description. (laughs) I love it. As adults, we need to sweat sometimes to get the kids engaged with us. You know, there there's some kiddos where, you know, you say their name and they'll look at you with such excitement and say, yes, okay, they're, they're engaged, you know, you've got them. But there are some kids where you kind of have to put on a three-ring circus to, to get yeah. them engaged, which does, does make you sweat a little bit, um, but it's worth yeah. it. <laughs> because if it's keeping the child engaged, that's what we want. Right. And, you know, again, I've heard parents say, gosh, if I worked as hard as you did, he really would stay with me more and, and connect with me more. And I think, yeah, that's kind of the, the whole purpose of this therapy thing is <laughs> to teach yes. parents how to do that and how to, how to consistently get that going. I use social games most often for that. So, again, those little things like patty cake and peekaboo and row, row your boat and ring around the rosies and those kinds of things. And, again, that's so developmentally appropriate for kids who are in my age range, and it doesn't look unusual at all. But for older kids, uh, same kind of premise, you're playing any kind of little back-and-forth uh, game where – your your only goal really in this phase is to keep them with you and excited and part yet other than, hey, I'm attending. I'm, I'm not trying to go off and do my own thing. I'm right here looking at you, making eye contact. Uh, and, again, I think about that, that back and forth. Again, even if there's no gesturing yet, no words, whatever, there is no doubt that the child is connected at that point with you. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, and then that kind of moves beautifully into level three, which is back and forth communication. Um, And that, as you know, is with or without language, just having some sort of back and forth. Because whenever there's an interaction, we're communicating in some way, you know. Um, And then we just want to kind of draw it out and make it a little bit more intentional. But when you're able to incorporate what the child loves, what their interests are, find the game or whatever it is that really lights that child up, that brings the gleam in the eye. It's amazing how the back and forth 
can just kind of begin to happen. So you can really kind of see how right. the levels are, are building on one another. Exactly. Exactly. So I like to talk to parents, too, about at this level, this is really, again, where even if we're not hearing words, if we're getting the gesture, even a game like Give Me Five, where you're back and forth, or a game where they are reaching for your hands, like let's play, and they're not saying, hey, Mom, I want you to play Ring Around the Roses again. They're just grabbing your hands, looking at you with a big smile, and starting to uh, walk in a circle. And I think, aha, <laughs> no progress yes. here. And a parent may be expecting a word, but I am over the top excited that that child initiated and and really did their part of that little routine. And so that's how I think about that two-way purposeful communication. And I love the whole concept of circles, closing circles. And that's where we um, find this starting to really, really happen with this that reciprocity piece, that back and forth piece. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, in DIR, we think about circles. So when you're opening a circle of communication, you're initiating. Um, and then to close a circle is to, um, to respond. So, hi, how are you? Right. I just opened a circle and good, thanks. How are you? They just closed it and opened it again. Um, and as you said, it can be with words or not with words. And I think that that's a key piece that that's one of those mistakes that I see so often is a child is grabbing your hand and giving you those eyes and, and you know what they want. Um, and so often I hear the demand for language, you know, say um, Clark or whatever it is. Um, but I think you, you really hit the head on the nail when you said, no, we know what they want. We, they're initiating and we know what their intention is. So following right. that, I think, is so exactly. critical. And I, it's just yeah, such I, a human need to feel heard and understood, you know, before we yeah. put that demand on them. Yeah, and so many of our little friends, especially in early intervention, they don't have that whole turn-taking piece. I mean, that's kind of a foreign thing to them. Their parents have done everything, and yes. they really don't, haven't been given lots of opportunities to initiate, and that initiation piece is so important, too. So thinking about working on turn-taking and working on initiating at those most basic non-verbal levels are where we really, really have to begin. And, and you know, we're talking about kids who are, on the spectrum, but this theory and this approach really lends itself beautifully to any kid with any kind of developmental delay or disorder, when, especially when there's a social component or when there's an attention uh, component, when they're missing, when you think, you know, they're just not connecting with me, or as a parent might say, they never listen. I can never get them to do what I need them to do. So, you know, I know as a speech pathologist and certainly as an educator, we know there's a perceptive language problem there, but it's actually a more basic issue than that. It's that they don't have that consistent social connected piece. So back to that level one or level two or that attention piece back to level one, you're never going to get to the two-way purposeful communication unless you get those levels firmly established and then work it in again in a nonverbal way before we get to that word or language piece. Absolutely, absolutely. And thank you for emphasizing that because so often you do see situations where the child doesn't um, maybe respond to something that a parent says. But it's right. not a matter of them not understanding. It's a matter of them being in their own world. They're, they're not even engaged. Right. They're not even getting that information into their body. Um, so, yeah, right. really making sure that we're starting at the bottom and working up. 
Um, and then when it comes to the initiation, because I love your emphasis on that as well, um, you know, if level two, the engagement is really the sweat level where we, the adults, right. kind of need to sweat sometimes to keep them engaged, often level three is thought to be the weight level. So once we get the child really engaged, once they're loving whatever the interaction is, if you hold back and wait, it's incredible how often the child will then begin to initiate because they want it so much. Um, so we're right. not putting the demand on them, but the more we hold back and wait, the more the child will come to us, and that's really what we want. And that is so hard for lots of parents <laughs> to learn, and therapists and educators too, because we just want to jump in as adults and do everything, and we just so many times we <laughs> circumvent a child's opportunities to initiate because we are too quick to just really jump in there and and follow our own agendas, like you've already said, rather than sitting back and thinking, you know, what can this kid do if I just shut my mouth for a second, <laughs> count to five <laughs> or ten or whatever we have to do. And that expectant waiting is such an important piece. And so I, I talk about that all the time on podcasts and things I write. Well, I teach courses too, that just expectant waiting because we can just get uh, – sometimes children will shock me with what they do when I've just given them that opportunity. Absolutely. Absolutely. Opportunity is everything. Um, and and yeah. sometimes the kids get so used to adults just talking and talking and talking yeah. and talking <laughs> that, that they kind of give up. You know, it's like, okay, well, yeah. you're not giving me a chance to jump in. So, so I love that. Right. Just giving them the opportunity is huge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, All right, so then move on to level, level four. Yes, perfect, perfect. Um, so then once we get to level four, we're really thinking about two-way. So here okay. the child's able to put together lots of back-and-forth circles um, to really solve some sort of problem that's going on. Um, and I like to think about it in terms of, you know, let's say a child finally gets that level three where they're communicating what they want. Maybe they say cookies. Um but then no one's around to get them a cookie. And then all of a sudden, right. once we hit level four, the child starts to think, you know what? I know where mom keeps the cookies. I'm going to go, yeah. I'm going to pull over a chair, I'm going to get on the counter, and I'm going to get a cookie. And, you know, is it necessarily appropriate in all settings? No. But from a developmental model, I get so excited because I say, you know what? That child just problem solved. They were able to meet their own wants and needs. And that's huge. That's huge. It is. Then they also start to feel good about themselves. Right. You know, in cognition, that whole cognitive piece, and for parents who are listening, you know, that might be a new word for you. And, and that just really, lots of parents think about cognition as how smart a kid is. It doesn't necessarily mean what their language level is, what, how many words they can say or understand or whatever, but it is just that basic problem solving, how they how they think, how they plan, how they remember, like you said, they remember where mom keeps the cookies. And that foundation has to be, again, moving along before words are even meaningful. So when we have children who aren't demonstrating those really early cognitive milestones like object permanence, like cause and effect, like simple problem solving, we know man, we are nowhere near ready to hear them talk yet because we've got some yes. developmental ground to cover. <laughs> They're just not there yet. So we have to make sure that, again, that we are looking for those 
those ways that we can build cognitive development and, and helping them get there into their days. And I love how Dr. Greenspan and all of his writings really talked about setting up little things so that children have those opportunities to solve problems so that we're not just giving them everything they want we're we're holding back a little bit we're waiting or even blocking you know that playfully sabotaging (laughs) (laughs) what we what they want to do so again there's that reason for them to communicate but it really does even beyond that force them to think a little bit you know how can how can I how can I make this happen for me Absolutely. Yeah. You know, as adults, we really do tend to do so much more for the kids than, than is needed for us to. Um, and right. I love that you're really emphasizing how can we set up those sorts of situations to help the child problem solve. And sometimes, you know, playing dumb is a fun sort of strategy where, yeah. <laughs> you know, if a child's kind of, you know, reaching for something and maybe we know what they want, but we're not sure we say, I, I don't know. I'm not sure what you're trying to tell me. I don't know exactly what you want. And, you know, sometimes the child, it's so funny, you'll see this look on their face like, come on, I thought you're the adult. Like, you should know this. Right. Um, but then they will problem solve and, and get that want or need met. And it's incredible how often, again, when just given the opportunity, um, they will find a way to get whatever it is yeah. that they want, especially if they're motivated for it. So once we find that motivation piece, I mean, we can use that in every and any way to really get things cooking. Yeah, and one thing I do there, an extension of kind of playing dumb, is really making intentional mistakes so that if you know, okay, he wants to color with markers, give him a truck or (laughs) or something that's totally unexpected. And, again, for kids that becomes – um, it can be a little bit frustrating, but it sort of becomes fun for them because it's more game-like. And then, the, again, that motivation piece, they really like to correct you with no. Or, <laughs> or uh, and I've had kids just kind of belt out a word that I've never heard before because, again, that motivation piece is already there, and they we, we've set that up, and we've given them that opportunity to use that little word or to come up with something that we know that they want, we know that they need, but we've we've uh, made that intentional mistake. And again, we don't do it in a mean way. It's always real teasing. And you know, you've talked about gleam in the eye. You know, I call that twinkly eyes. We have to have that too, so that a child knows, yeah. hey, this is fun. I'm on your side. We're we're doing this together. And it just does become an, another nice extension of that back and forth, where they are really engaged with you so that they can correct you and all of your silly mistakes and let them um, have the lead, have the lead in that kind of situation. So I think that's really cool when that happens too. Absolutely. And, you know, when a child begins to take the lead, especially when they're used to being told what to do and where to go and put places all day every day, I mean, they just feel so powerful when they are given the opportunity to correct the adult. You know, they really all of a sudden feel like the the king of the castle, if you will. And and that's what we want. Yeah. We want them feeling good about themselves because that's when they'll try new things and, you know, explore, um, be okay making mistakes. All of those good things kind of happen there. Yeah, yeah. So great. So once we have that level four, we move on to level five, which is elaborating on ideas. And this is where that representational capacity comes in, and the child begins mm-hmm. to evolve into symbolic thinking. Um, and this is a super fun level. So here the child is able to create mental representations of things that aren't physically in front of them. So when you say cookie, right. they can kind of imagine the cookie. 
Um, right. This is also where the child's able to convey some sort of emotional intention. Um, mm-hmm. And usually that's with that words, but it can also be, you know, just when a child really shows that they're mad, but they're staying regulated. They're staying with us. Um, right. This is the level where the child's able to have ideas, share them. And it's also where that fun play piece comes in. So where the child's mm-hmm. able to be a little more symbolic and, you know, they start flipping the yeah. imaginary pancakes or pretending to sleep. Pretending. Those sorts of activities. Mm-hmm. Yes. Pretending. Yeah. And, yeah, and pretending is so complex. I mean, sometimes parents, when I talk to them about play skills, and, you know, they'll think, okay, stacking the blocks or doing the puzzle, and, you know, they don't really get until we talk to them about how important pretending is. And, yes, we have to have all of that constructive play and all of that real functional play where kids know I drink from a cup and I push a car to roll it and I bounce a ball. They have to know all of those things first. But then the natural extension beyond that is pretending and really understanding, like you said, there's not a pancake there, but they are imagining that. And, you know, that's really, and this is how I explain that to parents, that's what what words are you know a ball is not a ball because we say it's a ball it's just a symbol you know we've we've come up with that word to represent that round toy that, and we all know yes. what that means and so until kids get here they really can't combine words and really can't use words um originally and something that is not uh echolalic or something that they've just imitated from somebody else this is where that that uh, really, again, that original intent where we see that in this level. And I think that's so important. And, with, and again, I want to just say to parents, you don't get there to level five unless you've done level one, two, three, and four. <laughs> and there are some kids yes. with scattered skills, and we will kind of see some of those little splinter skills that we call them, but we really have to have those solid foundations. So you can't play with the easy bake oven <laughs> and come up with making an elaborate dinner for your family as, a, you know, pretending to do that when you're, close to that, you know, two-and-a-half, three-year-old, four-year-old developmental level until you really started to do those other levels. So I think it's so important to kind of think about that. And even as we're moving to these higher-level things, you know, we can't just jump to those levels, and we have to think about all those other prerequisite pieces that have to come in. But level five is so cool. And, you know, as an early interventionist, when I get a kid here, you know, I'm like, hooray, my work is done. Good luck to you. (laughs) Go go see your next big people therapist. (laughs) Because this is, you know, uh, this is an, a, a bigger, yes. again, I kind of start feeling like we're home, you know, we're home free. We're going to get there. You know, when they get to the point that they can use some original language and, and, and combine ideas. And this is where we see for language development where phrases and sentences start to really come yes. in. And children can't do that from a developmental perspective until they reach this level and are able to combine these ideas non-verbally first. So I think it's such an important way to look at it. Absolutely. Yeah, and this is actually the same level where so many of the questions come in, like what, where, who, um, things like that. And so often, you know, people are are throwing out questions like that to a child who is still at level two, and it's just not appropriate. Um, right. And and even adults, sometimes I see, you know, a child who's really working to stay engaged with someone else. And I'll see an adult who has, you know, set up a, a great, you know, kind of kitchen set. Okay, let's yeah. make dinner. Um, and it's like, no, wait, okay. I love that the play piece that you're thinking about it, but we're not there yet. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Absolutely exactly. not there yet. So. Exactly. <laughs> that's, that's a All great right. example. 
Yeah. So then moving on to level six, um, here we're really doing emotional thinking. Um, so here's where we're building bridges. So a child's not just thinking about um, kind of what, the, what they feel, but they're able to explain why. And so often yeah. we see with the kiddos where why is the toughest question. And it's because they really yeah. have to build a bridge between what they're experiencing and the reasoning behind it. And that's so complex. Right. Um, it is and complex so to try to dis- yeah to try to interpret and explain your own behavior. I mean, even as an adult, that is really yeah. kind of a complicated process. Why did I do that? Why am I doing this? And it, it's it's really funny to me when I'll see funny may be the wrong word here, but when I see a parent ask a kid something like, "Why did you hit your sister?" You know, when he's <laughs> barely verbal at all. You know. And so, again, that's where we're not really paying attention to the kinds of expectations we have for kids because they're they're just not there yet. But this is a really cool level when we get them there because, again, we know they're really thinking. Absolutely. Absolutely. And actually, one of the funniest sort of landmarks to know that we're getting to level six um, is when misbehaviors um, can kind of be celebrated as developmental accomplishments. And an example of that is lying. Um, and yeah. that might sound totally inappropriate on so many levels, but, you know, when a child tells their first lie, no, of course, we're not right. going to celebrate it with them, but it's pretty but exciting we do. to ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. And if you think about how complicated lying is, they have to think about what they right. want, they have to think about what you want, they have to think about how to get what they want without you finding out about I mean, it's really complex right. thinking. And that's what we want the kids to do kind of across the board. But lying is often where it starts because it's based on what they want. <laughs> right, exactly. Can I get that cookie exactly. even though mom said no? <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. All right, so that, those are the six levels. I want us to move on to a, a topic that I, I told you that I really wanted to talk about, and then it's how DIR floor time is evidence-based practice, and it's research-based because that's the big rub that lots of therapists have with floor time. And it's not so much therapists I can, because I think once you become a believer in, hey, I've got to get this social piece going first and we've got to get this attention piece and this regulatory piece, once you kind of see how well that works and how really logical that is, I don't think you have as many questions. But, you know, there's a whole field and a whole kind of group of um, even medical professionals who will say, you know, this child is being diagnosed with autism. We have to go ABA with this child because that's evidence-based practice for the diagnosis of autism. And we don't really want to think about anything beyond, you know, ABA, ABA, ABA. And I'm not knocking ABA. So if you're an ABA therapist listening and you're thinking, oh, I'm going to hang out because Laura Mize is slamming ABA, I'm not saying that because I've used lots of structured uh, and lots of, I love how ABA is so, it's based on hierarchies and you have to do this and you have to do that. And certainly even listening to the show, you can see floor time is based on that too. And so let's kind of dispel some of those myths, Jenny, with uh, DIR floor time not being as evidence-based. So we can't really use this because there's no research to support it. That is absolutely false. So why don't you kind of fill us in with that? Absolutely, absolutely. And thank you for highlighting this because we see that as well here in, I live in Florida, um, 
where a child gets a diagnosis and it's immediately ABA is the only option. And, right. and we really need to kind of change that mindset. And so perhaps even starting with the pediatricians or whoever is diagnosing first, but really, um, so if you think about behavioral therapy, where it's, you know, um, a task, so touch your nose and then I'll give you a cookie sort of thing. Right. That is really easy to measure. So, you know, someone can be sitting there with a little clipboard and can easily kind of take tallies of, okay, they touched their nose, they touched their nose five times in a row, they must have it. Perfect. Done. Right. And it's really easy to collect data on it. Um, but at the same time, a big problem with that is that it's not necessarily generalizing. So then, right. maybe, you know, um, they, a child is, um, you know, maybe it's a play date or something where someone says, oh, oh, let's play head, shoulders, knees, you know, eyes near the mouth and nose. Um, and then the child can't do it. And they say, oh, but we thought that they could. Um, so that's one of the problems that I've seen both in in practice and in the research where behavioral therapies aren't getting to that generalization piece. Um, right. That being said, and let me just say, times, let me, yeah, yeah. let me just say, let me just interject because again, I know we have a big body of ABA people that listen. Let me just say you, there are some children that again, unless you are teaching those, all of these kinds of communicative behaviors in those really segmented pieces first, like you do this and then you get this. That's an excellent concept. And so many of our kids have to start back there. But your line is so great with saying we've got to go be able to go beyond that. And it has to it has to be something a kid can do beyond your ABA table or beyond that ABA session. They have to generalize it. They have to understand what that means. And I think a lot of times with that that was my big rub with ABA and I've become a a much more um, recognizing in my own self when I when I use a lot of those principles but at the same time I, that was my biggest drawback or my biggest misunderstanding or, or my biggest um, dare I say complaint about ABA and this was gosh you know 15 years ago when I first started working with children who were also involved in pretty um, extensive ABA programs is there wasn't there wasn't enough of a language link and they didn't always link you know you know, my big thing, and I remember working with the first little girl who had a really big ABA team, and I worked with, you know, four or five different texts, and, and like your example, you know, touch your nose, and then you can have the cookie, and I would just sit there and say, please, at some point, say, I want a cookie, or cookie, or let's, let's emphasize that this is about getting the cookie, not nose, we've, we've sort of got it wrong yeah. here, <laughs> and really yeah, making exactly. that connection with language, yeah, and that's what you mean about the generalization piece. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I just to kind of follow up on what you said, I definitely don't want to in any way, um, I definitely respect the behavioral piece. Um, yeah, and absolutely. those sorts of practices. Yeah. And sometimes, um, sometimes, well, okay, so let me actually focus on the research behind floor time, <laughs> because that is, <laughs> I'm, I love this topic so much. I could talk about it all day. Um, but the yeah. research floor time is extensive. And it is taking yeah. a while for insurance companies and for um, doctor's offices to really kind of get on board. But, um, but something that makes the documentation a little bit more challenging is that here we're talking about developmental gains. So we're really thinking about, you know, is the child able to engage with us on a more sustained right. basis? Um, and that's a lot harder to measure than, you know, tallying yeah. for touching your nose, for example. 
Um, right. So it is a little bit harder to measure. That being said, there is tremendous research mounting um, behind DIR. So behind the D, which is development, so following those levels, the I, the individual differences, and the R, building that relationship and how critical the relationship is for the child. Um, so there's yeah. a ton of studies coming out about those three pieces. And recently there was actually a, um, a study based on the PLAY project, which is kind mm-hmm. of DIR floor time in an early intervention setting um, right. where the therapist trains the parents to really implement the intervention. And the findings of that study were off the charts. And it's one of the few studies that's randomized, controlled over 120 um, participants across three states. And that's really a gold standard of research that hadn't been done before in the autism world. So to have a study like that really show that the benefits of using this approach far surpass everything else, I mean, that's pretty huge. and I actually it is huge. And that's Dr. Sorry, yeah, let me yes, just interject real quick. Let me just interject. That's Dr. Solomon, Richard Solomon. If we have any therapists who are there kind of thinking, I don't know what the play project is, that's Richard Solomon. And let me just say, too, in the link or in the post about today's podcast, and if you're on my email uh, list, I'm, I'll be sending that out on Monday if you happen to listen to the show, you know, before that's released on Monday. But if you'll go to Teach Me to Talk, I'm linking your website, Jenny, and then I'm linking the research portion of your website that goes to the ICDL site where we just study after study after study is listed there where, they, where therapists who are really kind of uh, hung up on EBP. <laughs> but if you yes. want to see that research and have those specific studies cited, you'll be able to get that from this link. So I just wanted to to put that in there. And if anybody's not familiar with Play Project, I wanted to make sure that Dr. Solomon is the name that folks associate with that because that is, that is the study that you're talking about. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Dr. Richard Solomon, he is absolutely amazing. And he created this training program and the study. Um, so right. it's pretty impressive research and it's kind of sweeping the world right now. I think it's in 80-something countries um, throughout the world. So it's really gaining steam, which is incredible. Um, And actually, Dr. Solomon, we had the the honor. He came down to South Florida recently to do one of his trainings. And whenever I possibly can, I go to visit him. Um, And so in this training, he shared with everyone um, an additional um, kind of resource that I will also post on the website so that way everyone can have access to it. Um, but there's 18 studies that were recently kind of released and put together, and they're all randomized controlled studies that really show the evidence behind parent-implemented models. So when awesome. parents really learn these approaches to connect developmentally with their kids, um, it's so, so powerful. So the, excuse me, the research there is really, really picking up, which is incredibly exciting. Yeah, it really is. And just think about that as therapists, you know, this is why we need to really talk to parents about how important it is for them to participate and how important it is for them to really want to carry these things over into a kid's everyday life. You know, and I say this all the time, with good therapists and educators, kids really can get better with therapy alone or preschool alone or school alone, but... (laughs) 
their progress is excellent. And certainly, if you're a parent listening to the show, you are so far ahead of the curve because if you have taken yes. time out of your day to listen to a podcast from a speech pathologist and an autism educator, again, you are cream of the crop because you are out there looking for information and doing this on your own. Nobody made you listen to this show. This is something, a way that you are choosing to spend your time so that you can help your child. And I just want to congratulate those parents. You know, I wish I could just kind of reach out and give a big virtual pat on the back here because you are exactly the kind of parents that – we want to work with because you are again doing everything you can to educate yourself and and make a big difference in all day every day with your child and it's not just about taking them to speech therapy or to school to have somebody else fix them you are learning what works for your kid and then you're able to carry that over 24 7 and you're going to be much more effective and a much bigger influence in your child's progress and improvement that any teacher or therapist would be because you have more opportunities and you have a a weighted interest that all of us don't have because you love your own kid more than we ever could because they are yours and so again I just want to give a big uh, congratulatory pause for uh, those of you who are parents and are listening because you know again I I just so um congratulate your efforts on that because you're going to be able to make a bigger difference when you're getting yourself some new things to do and some new knowledge. So I wanted to kind of get that in there. Absolutely. And and I really love the way you're emphasizing that, you know, it doesn't just have to be, okay, I went to this therapy and then this therapy, but you know, right. it is in those little moments throughout every single day, whether it's bath time, maybe you're working on engagement or, you know, fun tickles um, after dinner, or whenever it is, just having that time to connect with your child. I think that in itself is the most effective therapy, <laughs> connecting Me with too. your child, connecting with the kids, finding that joy. I mean, that is such a critical piece. Yeah, yeah. In uh, a course that I taught, like from 2000, it's on, still on DVD, so I'm not teaching it live anymore, but it's, I, it's my first course. It was Early Speech Language Development Taking Theory to the Floor. And I had a whole section in there that I heard, So I think it was a, a group, Floor Time Atlanta, or some group, I, I know they were from Atlanta, and their big expression was go for joy. And I used that in my course because I think it's so effective. And as speech pathologists, again, and, and parents of late talkers who also are uh, kids who have red flags for autism, so many times we're so hyper-focused on words, words, words. We have to hear those words. <laughs> when really it does begin with that uh, just joyful interaction and happy participation in that one-on-one connection. And that, again, that's just critical. And if we can teach parents to look for that first and let that, emotion and that that principle guide all of our interactions no matter what skill we're working on we're always going to be better off than if we had ignored that piece or didn't give it the importance that it really really deserves yes yes that's such an important point to emphasize absolutely yeah Yeah, without the joy we can't do anything and even if you think about ourselves as adults I mean, the things that we connect with, the things that we're really engaged in, it's stuff that brings us joy. And so if you don't have the joy, you're kind of just mulling along the day and, (laughs) and, you know, all right. (laughs) But but we all have days like that. (laughs) Yeah. 
<laughs> Absolutely. But they're not necessarily the most productive ones, right? <laughs> no, they're really Usually not. They're really, they're really not. Yeah. yeah, and that's why you talked about the motivation piece, too. We have to start with things kids like. We have to use that as their reason to communicate and their reason to want to understand words and their reason to want to learn how to follow directions and their reason to, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. We have to start with those internal little things that really matter because then you know, when we're constantly trying to engage children in things they don't like, you know, who wants to do that? Who, you know, and as, right. as adults, we can really relate to, you know, going to a job that you hate. I mean, that is just awful, you know, drudgery for 40 hours a week. Yet that's how a lot of our kids feel in school, in therapy. Because we're not really thinking about using that, what do they like, and does this bring them joy? Does this make them excited? Are they liking what we're doing? Are they constantly trying to get away? And that's when you know, I've got to change what we're doing here. If, he, if this child is constantly trying to avoid me, constantly trying to you know, run away instead of run to me, that's a big sign that we have to stop and reevaluate what we're doing because we're not meeting that basic human need to want to like what we're doing and be invested in what we're doing. So I, th I think it's a great principle to kind of think about, to guide every single goal, every single activity, every single therapy, no matter what your title happens to be, educator, speech pathologist, OT, blah, 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 whatever, fill it in. You know, we've got to all have that common starting point. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more, and I think that was beautifully said. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. All right, so we have a few minutes left, Dr. Jenny. What do you think we should, how can we wrap this show up about DIR floor time? What, what are things that we haven't said that you would like to discuss in our closing minutes here? Ah, wow. Well, there is so much. But I, I think really kind of ending on the importance of play, the importance of fun, the importance of finding out what that child likes to do and kind of putting yourself in their shoes. And I think once right. we do that, once we're able to put ourselves um, and kind of see the world from the perspective of the child, I think all of a sudden mm -hmm. we understand what's going on so much more and we're able to connect to them so much better. So right. it's really kind of following up on what we said in terms of the motivation and and all of that, but when we're really the world from our child's perspective, we get this window into what they love, what they know, what they don't know, what they're trying to do so hard, um, and we get right. to see their intent a little bit more. So I think that that's, mm -hmm. um, that's kind of a nice way to wrap it up is just to think about, you know, what is my child experiencing now? Why do you think they're doing what they're doing? Because there's always a reason. Our kiddos are so smart, so much smarter right. than we give them credit for, I think. Um, right. So trying to find out the why for them. Why are they doing this? What might they yeah. connect with? It's so powerful, and it can really change the whole direction of where our kids are going. Exactly. I love it. I love it. All right, Jenny, so tell us your website and Tell us any upcoming speaking dates that you have. And let me just say for SLPs, if you are near Jenny and you have never taken a DIR floor time and she's about to teach that course, you need to register for that today and go. <laughs> and then uh, tell us what your upcoming dates are, where you're going to be, because this, I, I love that my little podcast has an international reach. So people are listening <laughs> everywhere. And then uh, tell us about your website, too. You are so wonderful. Yes, so my website is www.drjennytk.com. 
so D-R-J-E-N-N-I-E-T-K.com. Um, and actually, we are taking a slight pause for the summer coming up for the DIR workshop, but then um, come September, we're starting up again. So every month, I will be in a different um, state doing three or four back-to-back-to-back conferences. Um, so upstate New York in September. Um, and then also, I want to do a quick shout-out. There is a wonderful, wonderful um, workshop that happens every October in the New York City, New Jersey area sponsored by Perfectum, mm-hmm. um, and they do a fantastic job. Um, so if you want to check out my website, or also you can find me on Facebook under Autism Education and Development Solutions, every event, every upcoming um, speech or talk or training, everything will be there. So I really love um, this topic, and I just want to thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to share it with all of your incredible, incredible listeners. Oh, thank, thank you so much, Jenny. I appreciate you being on, and I hope that our paths will, again, if you ever get to the point that you think, oh, boy, I want to be on that show because there's something new I want to say, or I wish I had said this, or da 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 if you want to have part two of this show, you just email me and let me know because I'd love to have you back. You were wonderful, and I know that I'm just going to get tons of fantastic feedback, so thanks again for joining us today. Fantastic. Absolutely will do, and I really appreciate it again. Thank you. Oh, thanks so much. All right, well, that's going to wrap it up for this week. Let me just say, next week, talking about ABA, we're going to have an ABA therapist on the show. (laughs) I hope she'll still come on the show after today. And we're going to talk about data collection and how that, why that can be such an important part in analyzing problem behaviors with children with when we cannot figure out why they're doing what they're doing, how just our piece in that is to stop and measure what happened first, then the behavior, and what they get, what's their benefit. So join me for that show next week. And, again, Jenny, if you're still hanging on, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thank you, Laura.